Well, it's good to be with you this morning after we have spent a couple of weeks uh, having online or virtual or whatever you want to call it uh, services. Um, they are uh, and will continue to be a poor substitute uh, for being together. And uh, Kenny mentioned earlier about the, um, the passage uh, as God is creating uh, the woman um, in the book of Genesis. And God says that it's not good uh, for man to be alone. And that passage is, is um, it's obviously a, a very important one, not only because uh, obviously it's God's creative work, but I've always found that passage to be important because it's a reminder that God has never been alone. So everything that exists outside of God has been created. Um, God is um, the only person, the only being, the only power that is eternal. Uh, but God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and so as I see that passage and we think about that passage, the reason it's not good for, be, for you know, us to be alone is God's, God's not alone. And He has eternally known the fellowship of being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and so a powerful thing is God has created. And so I've, it's not good for us to be alone in any way. Uh, my dissertation is on that very subject and in psychology there's a, a term for it um, you know when you want to be alone all the time it's not healthy it's not good and so as much as this last what it's going on a year now has been with social distancing and things canceled and that sort of thing uh, one of the long-term impacts is not just going to be a virus but the effect of people being alone um, because as God has said from the beginning that is not good and so that was part of the driving force in having service this morning is um, just, it doesn't take long to get tired of the little camera and nobody in here or standing in front of your Christmas tree uh, as I did a few weeks ago uh, after the kids had went to bed. Um, we're supposed to be together and we can do that wisely and we're going to try to do that wisely, um, but it's good that we can be together this morning. And I think it's good that we can be together as a church, um, as many people have faced a very difficult week, uh, not only with the virus, uh, not only with um, our, many of, of your students, uh, kids and grandkids being in remote learning uh, for most of the week, uh, for some of us a exceptionally disappointing snowstorm, um, and I use both of those words very loosely. Uh, because at our house, um, it was a snow slush of, what is the opposite of the word epic? Because, you know, epic proportions, it was the opposite of that. Disappointing proportions, I guess you would say. So, um, yeah, so, uh, but also we've had a week where uh, we have seen uh, a lot of political and social upheaval in our country 
And a friend of mine texted me yesterday or the day before and said, well, how much are you going to talk about that on Sunday morning? Now, y'all know that we go to the next verse. It's pretty much how it works. Um, so I said very little. Uh, because as I would remind people on the left and the right, your hope is not in Washington. And if the people had uh, burned that building to the ground, as terrible and as tragic as that would have been for our country, one, they would have just met somewhere else. And two, Jesus would still be in charge. And we cannot make light of the fact that just a few days before, a mockery was made of God in a prayer that opened up Congress. And so now a mockery is made of Congress by a, an idiot in a hat and a face paint. Friends, God is in control. None of them are. None of those people are in control. You know, next week there'll be a passing from one party and one president to the next. He's still not in charge. We have no election for God. The vote has been cast and all those pithy things that I'm sure somebody would have said before. It's been decided. And he is in charge. And how do we respond? Well, again, the Bible gives us insight into that even again this morning. And so we look at Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And I want to read for us this morning through verse 25. I welcome you to stand with me in reverence to God's word as we read this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen from our message last week. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and he entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, you may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You may be seated. A great persecution arose. As we heard last week, as Pastor Alex was preaching from Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Christ. He was stoned because he dared to push back against the religious authorities. He was stoned because he told them the truth. And, and out of that, we're told that Saul approved of this execution because the book of Acts is beginning to set us up to be introduced to Saul. We've seen him a couple of times now and we'll be introduced to him in the verses to come. He approved of this execution, and out of this, a great persecution began to arise against the church in Jerusalem, and they are scattered about. I want us to think about this persecution. How do they react? This word is beginning to be thrown about more and more in our culture. There's some validity to that, but some of it is just simply overstating the facts. But if we look globally, which we should because we are part of a global kingdom, the kingdom of Christ is a global kingdom and it does not have borders with Mexico and Canada. It is a global kingdom. The word of God is a global mission, a global word, a global message. And across the globe, there are people who are dying for their faith. They're dying even today for it. There are countries that are consistently making it illegal or much more difficult to practice one's faith. There are religious Christian minorities in some countries that are losing their lives. The question is how to respond. What will be the response to persecution? How should we respond? I want us to think about that this morning. How did they respond? If we think that persecution is coming... How do we respond? Let me tell you first, before we look at this first point, that it's not as some people have responded in the past. One of the most disheartening things about seeing the events of this week on television is the number of people who tried to do what they did in the name of Jesus. As you see here, that's not how the apostles responded. And we should not think that we should respond differently than they these signs that said Jesus 2020 or flags that had a cross on them have no place 
where people were being murdered, where buildings were being destroyed. The, the capital is not the temple. Even though people on the left and the right tried to use sacred language for it, it one day will lie in rubble. Whether it's done by our own country or some other country or God himself, How do we respond to persecution and difficulty? How did they respond? Verse 1, Saul approves of the execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church and they are scattered about. They bury Stephen, they lament over him, and many are being arrested. Saul is arresting them and dragging them off to uh, to jail. In verse 4, Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The believers respond to persecution by doing what? Preaching. Preaching. Not by rioting. Not by destruction. By preaching. Preaching the word. They're scattered to Judea and Samaria. All those regions, we're told, they're scattered about. And as they are scattered, they go about preaching the word. The word. Why? Because that's where the power was. They could have gotten together and said, okay, we need to go back to the temple and we need to march on the temple and if we'll just take it over. They're persecuting us. Let's push back. They scatter about, which is what they were supposed to do in the beginning. Remember what Acts 1.8 said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which they have been. In all Judea, that's where they got scattered to. Samaria, that's where they got scattered to. Amazing how that works, isn't it? You're going to be my witnesses and God scatters them. How do they scatter? They scatter in persecution. And what do they do? They preach the word. They preach the word. When we face difficulty in our life, when we face persecution in our life, when we face the things that are coming with the increasing secularization of our culture, what will we do? Friends, I hope we will preach the word because that's what the world needs. That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need to see us burning buildings down. The world doesn't need to see more angry social media posts. I don't know if you know that or not, but there's a lot of those already out there. We don't have to contribute to those. The world needs us to preach the word. And friends, we cannot wait until that is the last thing we have to do. That is the first thing we should be doing. It's amazing. I happen to think that God has always been in control. I don't know if you have ever heard me say that or not. It's been a theme maybe as the last eight years as your pastor I've mentioned. Seven years and 11 months and however many days or whatever it is. But apparently for some people God didn't become in control until uh, well after the election or, or after the House and Senate met or whatever. It's, it's God's going to do this and God's going to do this and all of a sudden he, he doesn't do what they said he was going to do and so, well, we still believe God's in control. Friends, I've always thought he's in control. I hope you have as well. And if we will express that confidence, 
both in good times and bad, it, opened up the, it opens up the door for us in these times of great difficulty to preach the word. It doesn't look like something we tagged on. As Christians, we're, we're really bad about that sometimes. We don't pray until it gets really tough. We don't read our Bible until we can't find the answer anywhere else. We don't preach the gospel and the word until all these other things we've preached haven't worked. Why don't we start here? It's the first response of the believers when they are scattered in the midst of persecution. They preach the word. And remember where they are. They are in Samaria. In particular, as we're going to look at Philip in a moment, he's in Samaria, a place that did not follow after God. A place that had a perversion of religion. But what does he do? He goes and he preaches the truth. In fact, that's our second thing. Their preaching, as we pick up in verses 5-8, through eight, their preaching brought joy to those far from God. So one of those scattered is Philip. One of those scattered is Philip, and he goes to the city of Samaria, which is kind of the, the capital region there, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. He goes and he tells them about the Messiah. And as he goes there, the crowds with one accord paid attention to him. Isn't that interesting? No one in Jerusalem had wanted to hear them. They had ran them out. They had persecuted them. But he gets to the place where the people do not know God. He begins to proclaim God's word. And the people with one accord paid attention to what was said by Philip. For they heard him... And they saw the signs that he did. As he's there and preaching, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, they were, uh, who had them. And many were paralyzed and lame, but they became healed. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. We're going to find out as we look at Simon the sorcerer, as we call him, in the verses that are ahead, that they had seen a false message. They had seen false signs and they had grown tired of it. At one point they had liked it and at one point it had, had meant something to them, but they had grown tired of it. But when they see the real thing, they pay attention to what is happening. When they see the, the real thing taking place, when they see authentic belief and authentic faith and authentic truth taking place, they pay attention to what is being said. And it brings joy to their city when the truth comes. If you think about the context in which we live now, truth has been roundly rejected. Truth is just completely and utterly rejected. We pick and choose, our culture picks and choose which parts of, of truth they, they want. They'll tell you to, for example, believe science but then deny human biology, deny life. We pick and choose. People in the church pick and choose. They, they pick the parts of God they like. This, this part, they like where God's really encouraging, but, but the other part where God says, you, you're hopeless without me. No, we don't like that. Or as, as Peter will call upon this sorcerer in a little while to do repent, they, they don't like hearing that word. That's, that's an ugly word. Because repent means that I've done something wrong. That, that I'm not as good as I try to pretend to be. 
And yet God calls upon each one of us to repent, to turn from our sin and doing it our way and to follow His way because His way is better, best, greatest. His way is right and our way is wrong. Pick and choose. But when they hear the truth, when they hear the truth in verse 8, it brings joy to that city because they see the real thing. Friend, think about the time in which we live. Do you, do you not think that people could use a little bit of joy? They're, they're hungry for it. I mean, look at a, a couple of weeks ago, and, I, and obviously this is an imperfect example, but a couple of weeks ago there was a debate going on about, about whether or not the government would give us $600 or $2,000 or $2,000 a month or whatever. I mean, it's all kinds of, of debates. And there were some people who said, man, that $600 would really be helpful here at the end of the year. And the other people, $600 is nothing. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not to the point in my life where $600 is nothing. It's still $600. And as I said on social media, anyone who doesn't want theirs is welcome to give it to me, and I will put it to good use. Because then I will have more than $600. But there were people who their joy or happiness was tied up in the prospect of getting $600 or $2,000. That's a lot of money. You know, $2,000, because it's not just $2,000. I mean, if it's just you, it's $2,000. But, I mean, I got a whole big house full of kids. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of money. It's more money than I made in some years in the past. But, but guess what will happen? It will get spent. And it'll kind of be like when you're an adult, and you adults know this, some of you kids don't know this, but when, you, when you're an adult and you end up for Christmas, you know, you've got to buy your own presents, right? And so really it's about the same if you get something or nothing because you had to buy it either way. When your joy gets tied up in that, man, it's really easy for it to go away because you could lose that money, you could spend it and it not, you know, bring you as much joy. It could be a vacation and it not be restful, whatever it is. But what it tells me is that people are hungry for joy. They're hungry for it. Because what they, what they often have is temporary happiness, but they don't have joy that is sustained in their life. And the reason for it is that most people are living only for today and only for themselves and only for things that are temporary and they've been convinced by our culture that everything is temporary. And so therefore there's nothing that can give you sustained joy because everything is going to fade away and fall away. As my, uh, one of my teachers in high school used to say, life sucks and then you die. Now, he, he was being sarcastic except that that's how most people live. Life is kind of crummy, and then you die. But we're told that when Philip comes to this town and they hear the truth, 
there was much joy in that city because the preaching of God's word, the truth of who God is, brings sustainable joy in the lives of people. It's the thing that can give you joy despite the temporary circumstances, despite lockdowns and recessions and political upheaval and school being virtual one day and in person the next and semi-virtual. I don't know. There's so many combinations. I can't keep up. Joy sustains us through ups and downs, persecution, hardship, blessings. That's what joy does. And so the preaching of God, the preaching of His Word, brought joy to those people who were far from God. They had seen false teaching, and we're going to encounter that with Simon. They had, they had, they had seen and witnessed and been a part of, of false and, and, and magic that had let them down. But now they have joy. Friends, this is a time when people need joy. And they're not going to find joy in, in a stimulus check, and they're not going to find joy in an election, and they're not going to find joy in lockdowns or the lifting of lockdowns. Joy is found in God and God alone. Joy is found in Christ and His hope that He gives. And that's what happens when they come to this city. What do we see next? Out of this persecution, that they've been preaching the Word, and we find in verse 9 that the people believe when they hear the good news. Look what happens. There was a, a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So there's, there's this guy. He, he could practice magic. Uh, what did that look like? Okay, did, did he have some type of, of abilities based on you know, being wicked? Uh, was he really a master of deception? Uh, so if you, if you look, there's a... There's, there's some prosperity preachers that you can see these videos online, and they, they go around and find people, and apparently all these people have uneven legs, okay? I, I don't know if this is a problem, an epidemic that I wasn't aware of, uh, but apparently people everywhere have legs that are uneven. And uh, they go, and it's, it's, a, it's a thing, you know, I'm going to heal you, and, and he, he, he manipulates the guy's leg, and all of a sudden, look, now your legs are the same length, and apparently they weren't before, and... Uh, so, again, it's apparently an epidemic that prosperity preachers can find and healing preachers can find out there at the mall. So, was it that? Was it, hey, I twisted your leg and now it looks even and, wow, I'm a great healer? Or was it you know, he was endowed by Satan with some type of power uh, that gave him this? I don't know, but whatever he had done, he had previously practiced magic. He's lost that ability. But when he did it, when he could do this... He amazed the people of Samaria, and he himself said he was somebody great, and they paid attention to him from the least of the greatest, verse 10 tells us. Uh, this man, they said, is the power of God that is called great, and they paid attention for a long time, a long time, because he amazed them with his magic. They were captured, their attention was captured by something false. This shouldn't surprise us. How much of the attention of the people around us is captured by something that is false? A false religion, false idols, false philosophies. 
it's captured, they're captured by it because it sounds cool and trendy and amazing. That happens all the time. I'm reading a book right now about how, how across our country there is this philosophy capturing young people, especially young women, convincing them, though they have no evidence ever showing before, that they are not really a young girl, but they are a young man. Epidemic proportion. No explanation, no scientific explanation, no medical explanation, but it is a philosophy that is capturing these young girls. And at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, they're wanting to go on hormone blockers and have surgery because they've, they've convinced themselves that they are young men. No, no reason other than just peer pressure and, and online discussion. They're captured by it. Just like this man, he has captured their attention because he amazed them with his magic. He sold them something. But look what happens, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. They were captured for a long time by this guy named Philip. Captured by what he had to say, captured by what he was doing, captured by what he could perform. But then when they realized that he could no longer do this, when he couldn't entertain them anymore, when he couldn't draw their attention anymore, they had nothing. But when Philip came, he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and they were baptized. They believed when they heard the good news. The people believe when they hear the good news. Why should we be surprised that the people of our world are captured by lies? Most of them have never heard the truth. They're captured by lies because they have never heard the truth. Now, I'm not saying that if each and every one of them hears the truth, immediately they're going to abandon their lies, but many of them have never heard the truth to abandon the lie for the truth, to abandon the darkness for the light. They've never heard it so that they would know there's something else. I've told the story many times of the young girl. My previous church was doing the Good News Club, and a young girl came to Good News Club. It was, I think it was the first one of the year. We get everybody in their cars, they go home, I get back to the church and I get a phone call. And the lady says, hey, I'm a parent from Good News Club. And immediately my mind's going, we, you know, something's went wrong, we've done something wrong, something's happened. And she says, my daughter just brought home the, the little uh, take home that you give that's got a little devotional and some activities in it. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, she said does she need to bring that back next week? You know, basically is it homework? I said, no, that's, that's for her, that's for her to do the activities, you know, I hope you'll do them with her and, and, and spend that time with her, you know, looking at the Bible verses and, and, and doing the devotion. She said, well, good, well, I, she said, I'm really glad that I sent her today. I said, ma'am, we're really glad that, that you sent her as well. And she said, and, and this is what's always stuck with me, she said, you know, that's probably the first time she's ever heard about Jesus. Now, this little girl was eight years old, she lived a few houses down from our church in Rutherford County, foothills of North Carolina, buckle of the Bible Belt. She says she's probably never heard about Jesus. She says she's never been to church. Now one, it's bothersome that this mother has a realization that that's something she needs to be doing and has never done that. 
But two, what does it say about us that there can be people living near our church in the Bible Belt where all the churches are and they've never heard the truth? We should not be surprised that people get swept up and caught up in all of these lies because they have never heard what is truth. And when Philip goes to Samaria and he begins to proclaim, they believed. They believed and they were baptized, both men and women. Friends, people cannot believe until they hear the good news. They're going to do this. We, we look at, at repulsion at the decisions that people make. We look we look at how our leaders lead. We look at what our culture teaches. And we are repulsed by it. And we should be repulsed by it. And I hope we never lose that repulsion. But we cannot be surprised by it. Because they have never heard the good news. So how would they believe what is true? They will accept a lie until they're confronted with the truth. The people believe when they hear the good news. But there's this guy that we come back to, and he's not fully on board. We met Simon a minute ago. He was practicing magic. He used to practice magic. What do we see? Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. That, that, would, that would be good news, right? Even Simon himself believed. And he was baptized. He continued with Philip. These are all positives. This is a good thing. Here's this guy who used to work magic, but now he has been saved, and this is a good thing. But then we read that seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So hold on to that idea. This is, this is Simon, Simon the sorcerer. He, he, has been, he believes and he's been baptized. He's following after Philip. And we'll come back to him in a moment. Verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem hear that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John. They came and they prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit because they have not received the Spirit yet. What does this tell us? That the apostles came to pray for them so that they would have the miraculous signs of the Spirit upon them. The Spirit not fallen upon them for that to happen. And so... so it's not happened. They've been baptized in Jesus' name. We're told that they believe, but the, the, the signs, the miraculous signs have not fallen upon them. And so Peter and John come so that, that would happen to them. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But then we come back to Simon. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, we're not told that he has the Spirit. In fact, Peter will say later on that, that he still has this, this bitterness and the bondage of iniquity upon him, he says in verse 23. So Simon offers them money. It makes sense, right? He had been able to perform magic and that had drawn a lot of people in. He'd probably done very well for himself because remember, they have followed him for a long time. And there's a lot of money to be made in manipulating people. He followed them for a long time. Or they rather the Samaritans followed him for a long time, but now they've stopped because he used to practice magic. 
But when he sees what happens when the Spirit falls upon these people, remember Philip had come in and he had cast out demons, he had healed those who were sick, he had had healed those who were paralyzed, he had the Spirit of God upon him, and now the apostles have come and they have laid hands upon these other uh, Samaritans and they have the Spirit of God and he wants it. And so he offers them some money. He says in verse 19, Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What was he concerned about? The flash. The spectacle. The scene. The entertainment value. False followers are only concerned by the flash. They're only concerned with the flash. They only want the big production. They only want what they can get out of it. He says, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a good thing, but he believes that he can buy the gift of God. That this gift that has been given freely... Well, if you believe the gospel, you understand that this is not the case. If you believe the gospel, you understand that this is not possible. If you know the good news of Christ, you know that it's not possible simply to to pay for it. In fact, Peter tells him that in verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot, part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He says, you can't buy it. You can't buy this gift. You clearly don't understand what is happening. You clearly don't understand what God has done. You cannot buy this gift. It's been given freely. In fact, he tells in verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He says, repent. Simon didn't really care about following Jesus. It was the next big thing for the town. Remember, Simon had been the guy. He'd been the guy that everybody looked to. He'd been the guy that everybody followed after. He'd been the guy that everybody wanted to see. But now it was somebody else. Now it was Philip talking about this guy named Jesus. Now it was this Peter and John who had the ability to lay on hands and now people could heal. If he only had that, if he only had that, he could be somebody. Remember, he had tried to convince them before that he is someone. He had said that he himself was somebody great back in verse 9. And now he could really prove it if he had the ability simply to give the Spirit. And he could charge a premium to do so. And to that, Peter says, repent. Friends, we need to be wary of false followers who are only concerned about the flash. Only concerned about what they can get out of it. Only concerned about the spectacle of it all. Because that's what so many people want. They want the the spectacle of it. They want to create a, a big scene. They want to make themselves to be out to be something. But that's not what God does. 
God calls on us to follow him. We receive the Spirit as a gift. We receive our salvation as a gift, not something we can buy. What does it tell us about Simon? It tells us that he desired religion without repentance. That's the problem with those who only desire the flesh, is they desire religion without repentance. He's told in verse 22 to repent. Look in verse 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What a strange response that is. If we're just reading through this quickly, we may gloss over that. What What a strange response this is. Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What did they tell him to do? They told him to repent. But he doesn't want to repent. He says, pray for me. Have you ever heard that before? I know I have many times. People you're talking about who, who, what they need is repentance. But what they ask for is prayer. Peter doesn't say, hey, hey, ask us to pray for you and we'll do that. Peter says, repent. This guy knows what he needs to do, repent. But he doesn't repent. He says, pray for me. Pray for me that nothing of what you said would happen. Well, what had Peter said? Peter said, may your silver perish with you. Well, he certainly doesn't want that to happen. May your, may your silver perish with you. That's what Peter had said. He said, uh, pray, that, pray that your heart may be forgiven. Well, why wouldn't he want that to happen? That sounds like a good thing. The problem is he doesn't want to repent. He wants religion. He wants the spirit. He wants the spectacle, but he does not want to repent. He wants the religion without repentance, but friends, you can't have that. You can't have Jesus without repentance. That's the problem we have in the mainline Christian denominations today is they do not talk about repentance because everything is permissible. Everything is okay. If you want to defy God, that's all right. It's your choice. God just wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to repent. He wants you to turn from your sin because turning from your sin is the realization that His way is perfect and your way is not. We try to tell people that their way is all right, even if it contradicts what God has said. But friends, God's way is perfect. That's not what Simon wanted. He wanted the religion. He wanted the spectacle. But he wanted it without the repentance. Friends, that's not how it works. We want to talk about preaching the good news during persecution. Preaching it through hardship. Living out truth to a world that has denied truth. Friends, it comes with repentance. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. Repent and believe. Peter calls on this man to repent. To turn from his sin. To turn from the bondage of his iniquity. And he says, just pray for me. Friends, that refrain continues to be the refrain of sinners even today. Just pray for me. Friends, praying for you is good. 
There's nothing wrong with a request to pray for you. But when God has called you to repent, asking me, asking another believer, asking someone else to pray for you will not suffice and is not a substitute for your repentance. But that was his desire. Religion without repentance. And that is the religion of our day. That is the religion of our culture. Religion without repentance and religion without truth. And that's where they leave this man. With his request that they would pray. If we had this, we've had many people come and follow, but yet we've had this one man who has tried to manipulate the process. What might that have done to the apostles? How how would that have affected how they responded to this persecution? Look at the last verse. And now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. What we find out here is that they're not deterred. They're not deterred at all. They're not deterred by this disappointment of this man who has done who has done this thing, this man who has, has tried to manipulate the process, this man who has refused to repent. They're not deterred. They continue on. They testified and spoke the word of God. They returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Friends, in our day, as we're facing difficulties and persecution, as we're facing hardships as a church, as a church of Jesus Christ, as we're facing trouble in our nation, the question is, will we be deterred by our disappointment? Sometimes people set up wild expectations. When they do, it's easy to be disappointed and then to become deterred by that disappointment. How many believers have you known that they would, they would go to a place and there would be all these people who did great things and one who didn't and they would be just devastated by it? Can't handle it. If we've got the joy that comes from knowing Christ, we cannot be deterred when we're disappointed. I was thinking in our, our first service this morning that what, like 8.05, there was nobody in here, right? I mean, it was like, we're going to go eat breakfast and not worry about it till 9 o'clock. And a few people trickled in. And we could look this morning, and there's people that aren't here, and, and some, many, because they're, they're still worried, as they should be, especially folks in our church that are very vulnerable, worried about this virus. It would be easy to be disappointed by that and say, well, you know, I wish that pew was full or I wish we had a few more people here. You know what I've seen? I've got pastor friends that they are religious when it comes to keeping up with how many people come to each thing they have. And so they'll, they'll have somebody that's tasked every week with saying, okay, we had, you know, we had 110 this morning. And last week it was 115. We've got to do something different. And you know what I've heard in every one of their voices is, is a real sense of joy when the thing that they count looks positive. But a sense of despair when the thing that they count 
is not positive. And they have no reason to be that way because it could have been a vacation. It could just be people's time in life. They don't know if the message, it doesn't, it doesn't count if the message you know, had an impact on somebody, if it changed somebody. It's all about this is the thing that we calculate with. You know what we see here is that these men, when they go to Samaria, they know that their task is to preach the word. And when they preach the word, that gives them joy. And even with this disappointment of this Simon who, who does not repent here, they're not deterred. They continue. They speak the word of God there. And as they're going back to Jerusalem, they continue to preach the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Think about this. If the persecution had not happened, Philip would have not went to Samaria where lives would have been changed. They wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. And then because lives were changed there, the apostles came to Samaria. And because they came to Samaria, at some point they had to go back. And so on their way back, they preached. And so other people have heard the good news. All because of this persecution that could have easily deterred them from their work. And so instead of seeing it as a disappointment, they saw it as an opportunity. And they taught the word of God where they were. And they taught the gospel on their way home. They're not deterred by disappointment. So here's, here's the challenge this morning. You and I need to endure we need to endure through difficulties. We need to endure through persecution. We need to endure. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to be a person of truth in a world that doesn't trust truth, that denies that truth exists. But we must endure. We must endure through any hardships that come our way, whether it's something that God puts in our life, to grow us, whether it's the reality around us, we must endure through difficulty and persecution. Because we live in a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. A world that desperately needs to know Him. And if we are unwilling to share the good news, then they will never hear. And we can never be surprised that they continue to live in their error. They continue to live in their sin. They continue to reject God when they have never heard the good news of Christ. We must endure through whatever comes our way for the sake of the good news. Let's pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that you love us and that you brought us here together. God, I pray that we would be faithful. We would be faithful no matter what comes. We would be faithful no matter what is ahead. That we would endure. God, I pray that we would be light in the darkness. That we would be hope to the hopeless that our joy would shine through 
when the false joy of the world fades. God, I pray that you would lead and guide us during this time. Strengthen every heart. Help us to endure what is ahead. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. That he has given his life so that we might live. And my prayer this morning is that we live for him. As we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we sing this final song. This morning, if you've never followed Christ, the same, the same message, the same call that Peter gave to this guy named Simon is given to you. Repent. Turn from your sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're called upon to turn, to turn from that sin and follow him, to believe, to believe in Christ, to believe that his death has given us life. If you've never done that, this morning is the time to do that. This morning is the time to come and let me share with you how you can know Christ. But friends, if you know him this morning, the call is to endure. To endure by sharing his truth, sharing the good news of Christ with a world that desperately needs it. you be faithful? Would you endure in the midst of all difficulty? Pray during this time that God would would give you the strength to endure whatever hardships come so that you can be found in Christ. Would you respond to his word this morning as we sing together?
seasons And I believe I'll see you do it again You made a way Where there was no way And I believe I'll see you do it again I've seen you move Come move the mountains And I believe I'll see you do it again You made a way Where there was no way coming to worship with us this morning and pray that as you go the Lord would bless you and keep you and then no matter what we face this week what we face in the weeks ahead that we would endure because he has saved us he has given us his grace he's given us his truth he's called upon us to endure in the midst of whatever trials we face as so we pray for that as we're dismissed this morning let me pray for us Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us and caring for us. We thank you, God, that you guide our heart. Help us to endure whatever comes our way, whatever difficulty lies ahead. Help us to proclaim your word in the midst of persecution and distress. Give us, God, give us grace for every day. Give us grace no matter what comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.